In my opinion, one of the best things we can do as we share the gospel with people is not just to describe what they get when they place their faith in Jesus for salvation, but to describe for them what life will be like for them after they place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And I think this is good for a lot of reasons. One of those is that because we as humans, we kind of like to know what we're getting ourselves into when we make commitments, right? We like to know what we're saying yes to. We like to know what is the cost of this relationship that we are entering. We like to know what is expected of us if we make this commitment. It's one of the reasons that we use contracts in our culture. Our contract is usually an agreement between two parties for what they will mutually do for each other. It's a way to help us kind of count the cost of something before we officially enter into it. And that's good for someone to consider maybe that's not a Christian yet, that hasn't placed his or her faith in Jesus for salvation. That person should be asking questions like, if I place my faith in Jesus, what am I getting myself into? If I place my faith in Jesus, what does it mean for me to give my life to Him and follow Him? What is it going to cost me personally? What changes might I need to make if I follow Jesus? Will it be worth it? All good questions for someone to ask if they've never placed their faith in Jesus. And as we continue going through the Gospel of John, there are people that have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ just more than three years before this day that we're looking at right now in chapter 19. And they are at a point that they are having to decide, is following Jesus worth the cost? They've just seen this man, the 12 disciples specifically of Jesus, in the last 18 hours. They have seen him be arrested by 600 soldiers. They've seen him endure three unjust trials in front of the Jews. They've seen him endure three unjust trials in front of the Romans. They know he's been flogged and beaten. They saw him placed on a cross at 12 p.m. and at 3 p.m., they probably knew that he cried out, it is finished, and Jesus died. In this passage that we're going to look at here, and that Carolyn read for us, we see a Savior that is placed in the darkness of the tomb, but as that Savior is placed in the darkness of the tomb, there are three disciples that we see coming out in the light because of their faith in Jesus. See, the big idea that I think John is telling us here is that the death and burial of Jesus requires true followers to emerge with their words and their works. Because the things that we say and do as followers, while they might have a high cost, they should point others to Jesus. So if you have a sermon outline there, we're going to look at the body of Christ and what occurs to his body on the cross. We're going to look at the believers in Christ, these three disciples that emerge, and then the burial of Christ. And if you follow the back of the sermon bulletin, I usually put the sermon titles and outline, um, passages there. We did skip a section of scripture you might have noticed, not because I wanted to avoid it or because it was 
controversial, but because we'll come back to that on Good Friday. That's going to be the scripture that we'll, we'll look at on that day. So let's first read about the body of Christ on the cross. As I said, Jesus dies on the cross about 3 p.m. He cries out, it is finished. And then John picks up the story in chapter 19, verse 31. John says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with Jesus. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. John, as he writes this, he starts to introduce us to a new scene from Jesus on the cross, directing our attention to some other people using then at the beginning of verse 31. And then he describes the Jews here. These are the same Jews that wanted Jesus crucified. And they're concerned here, they have a slight problem, because according to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 22, if someone was killed and put on a tree, the law said that person should not remain on the tree overnight. So these Jews go and ask for the Romans to intervene and quicken the death of the people on the cross. The time is about 3 p.m. on Friday, and it's the day of preparation. It's the day before the Sabbath. And this wasn't just a Sabbath coming up. It was the Passover Sabbath. It was almost a double special holiday. See, someone that was hung on a cross, they might live for hours or even days, but the Jews want to make sure that Jesus is killed and he's not there overnight. So the soldiers go to Jesus, but they find out and they're surprised when he is already dead. That's the first proof that we see of Jesus' death. The soldiers go to Jesus to kill Jesus, but they discover he's already died. But just to make double sure, just to be 100% sure he's dead, or maybe they just wanted to be brutal, they take their three and a half foot spear made of wood with metal on the end, and they pierce Jesus' side. And John tells us, out comes blood and water from Jesus. Likely blood from his heart and water from the pericardial sac that is surrounding the heart of Jesus. The second proof that John gives us that Jesus died on a cross. See, there were some teachings going around the end of the first century when John wrote this gospel in 90 AD that Jesus, he was God, sure, but he wasn't really a man. He wasn't really a human. They were called docetists or the Gnostics. They said Jesus kind of appeared like a phantom or he was a spirit. He didn't really have a body. But John is telling us clearly that Jesus did die and that he testifies to these things. Then if we skip verse 35 and go down to 36 and 37, 
John gives us an explanation of the things going on here and describes the purpose. He says in verse 36, For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of himself shall be broken. And another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. John tells us the purpose of this. These things came to pass too. And the purpose was they had to fulfill scripture. The fact that Jesus had no bone broken fulfills Exodus and other parts of the law where the Passover lamb had to be perfect and unblemished and couldn't have any broken limbs. And in that way, Jesus fulfilled the Passover sacrifice. Just as the Passover lamb would be a sacrifice for the sins of the Jews, Jesus is now that same sacrifice for the people. And verse 37 is a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10 where it describes how the people will look on their God in shame. So that's the body of Christ. But as we continue to read John's words, he reveals three of the believers in Christ that emerge during this dark time. If we go back up to verse 34... John describes how Jesus died and how he saw blood and water coming out of Jesus' side. And then John says this in 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. See, verse 35 is an explanation of verse 34. Explanation is a literary device sometimes biblical authors will use where they will present an idea or an event and then they'll give an interpretation of that idea and that event. And that event is Jesus being pierced in his side and the interpretation of it is John is the one that saw it. The guy that wrote this gospel, John the son of Zebedee, John the writer of the gospel of John, he also wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. And he's trying to emphasize that these are things he literally saw with his own eyes. John puts his words in the present participle, perfect present participle, which usually indicates it's something that he saw and that he almost can still see in his mind vividly to this day. He saw it then, but he can still see it just like it was yesterday. And there's a purpose of what he is testifying. He says, so that you may also believe. John believed Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. And he wants other people to believe the same thing. One chapter later, John starts to summarize this gospel. He says, these things have been written, this gospel of John, so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have life. We often say, if you're going to share the gospel or read the Bible with someone that's not a Christian, they'll usually say, what book to read? The Gospel of John. And that's because that is his purpose. He tells us specifically here and in chapter 20, verse 31, I wrote these things so that someone would believe. That's why people say, read the Gospel of John with an unbeliever. And it's a really easy book 
to read. And as we read about John, this author, describing himself in verse 35, it reminds us that us as believers in Jesus Christ, our assignment is to testify of what we have seen Christ do so that others may believe. We're supposed to testify of what we have seen Christ do so that others may believe. Now, we didn't literally see Jesus die like John did, but we do see Jesus act and work now in our lives. For me, a, a difficult time I went through was between the last church I worked for and that process of looking for a new church. And one of the things that was comforting for me during that difficult time was music. I would have a couple CDs in my truck and would listen to those as I would drive along. And there was a specific song by a specific artist, and I knew his story that I would listen to over and over that would help me on those difficult days. And through some research and getting the candidate here and praying to God, I got invited to be the pastor here. But even through that process, even though things look like they line up and God opens doors and it looks like it's God's will, there's always that little bit that you kind of doubt in your mind. I think this is what God wants me to do, but is it really what he wants me to do, right? And so we accept the position to come here, we move here, and I'm confident, but I'm still a little unsure, always in the back of, of my mind, right? And we, Jen and Luke, they flew up here on an airplane, and Jen's dad and I drove. I drove the U-Haul with my truck on the trailer, and Jen's dad drove her car. And we got to Moses Lake on that day two years ago when it was 116 degrees. That was the day we arrived to Moses Lake at 4.30 in the afternoon, the absolute hottest time of the day. So we unload the U-Haul, we take my truck off the trailer, and I hop in my truck to drive it down here because I had some stuff to take to church. And I turn on the ignition, and there was a CD in the CD player already on that same song I had listened to probably 30 times. Maybe coincidence, or a gentle way of God saying, this is where I want you to be. Right? And we need to have stories of like those where we see God work in our lives. Not just to comfort us and encourage us, but to share with others so that they may also believe in Jesus. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. When you have those things where you see Jesus act and intervene, write them down. Maybe you're smart enough to remember them all but I write them down in my journal so that when I'm going through tough times or I need to witness to somebody, I can look through here, evidence of God working in my life. And I can kind of go through my journal, write them down in a journal on a piece of paper or in the notes feature of your phone so that you can testify to others of how you see Jesus working in your life. So that's the first believer in Christ that we see emerge in the light as Jesus is pre preparing to go into a tomb. The second one is this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. If we call John the companion disciple that has been with Jesus the whole time, we can call Joseph the courageous disciple that emerges here. In verse 38, John writes, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, being a secret one for fear of the Jews, 
asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Now the city of Arimathea was about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea probably was born there, but now lives in Jerusalem since his tomb was there. And he shows up in all four gospel accounts to describe how he helps to bury Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, he's described as a rich man. In the Gospel of Mark, he's described as a member of the Sanhedrin, which meant he was part of those 70 rulers of the Jewish temple. In the Gospel of Luke, he's described as someone that was looking for the kingdom of God. But here in John, John clarifies. He says he was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Now at this time, if someone was killed as a criminal, the family members could go request the body for their own private burial, as Joseph of Arimathea does. But this was a risky task for Joseph of Arimathea for two reasons. One, he's not related to Jesus. So if he goes and he asks for Jesus's body, he is starting to implicate himself to being a possible connection to this traitor, this guy that claimed to be God, this guy that they killed. So that's the first caution he has. He might be seen as an associate of this person that they just executed. Second, a guy named Craig Keener who teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary has done some writing where there was evidence that if a rich elite person went in this way, they sometimes would be falsely accused of certain things because other powerful people wanted their property and their possessions. So this might have been a way that the other members of the Sanhedrin could see Joseph of Arimathea and jump on this opportunity to seize his wealth and his property as he goes to associate himself with Jesus. That's the second disciple we emerge and see emerge into the light. But there's one more. A guy named Nicodemus in verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. Now we've seen this man named Nicodemus before in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, he's described as a Pharisee, so he was a religious leader. He was described as a ruler of the Jews, so he was prominent and influential. And he was described as the teacher of Israel. But in John chapter 3, we also see Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night to ask him some questions and talk to him. Possibly because he wanted to avoid comment or criticism. Possibly he didn't want to get into an argument in front of his other Pharisees and embarrass them. Or possibly he just wanted some uninterrupted time with Jesus. But as much as we want to know what Nicodemus did as a result of that meeting in John chapter 3, John doesn't tell us. Nicodemus asks some questions of Jesus. Jesus answers them. And then John just moves on to the story of John the Baptist. We don't get to know what Nicodemus actually decides. But in John chapter 7, Nicodemus, he shows up again. The Jews are plotting as a way to kill Jesus, kind of like they are throughout the whole book. And this guy named Nicodemus speaks up to the Jews and says, 
Doesn't our law require that we talk to a person before we decide he's guilty? God was doing something in Nicodemus's heart, and he speaks up in that way in John 7. And here we see Nicodemus show up to help bury the body of Jesus. See, usually they would bury bodies in this time. They would wash them with water. Then they would take long strips of cloth and put aloe and myrrh and spices on them and then wrap them around the body to keep the body tight and preserve the body since they didn't embalm bodies. And literally, it says here that he had 100 litras, and a litra was 12 ounces. So he has about 75 pounds of spices. I weigh 150 pounds. So imagine half of your pastor's weight in spices is what he's carrying, if that gives you a little feel for it. Not sure if I'm supposed to ever tell my weight to people, but it seems like a good way to illustrate the amount of weight right now. Only women, okay. Men can describe their weight, okay. So as we read about these two disciples, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, it tells us that us as believers in Christ, our assignment is to act on what we believe so that others may believe. We need to act on what we believe so that others may believe. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. Nicodemus was a ruler. Joseph of Arimathea gave a tomb he had. Nicodemus wraps Jesus with 75 pounds of expensive perfume and spices. Yet each of these guys probably showed greater courage now that Jesus was dead than they could have showed before because Jesus has been killed. There's no more stricter way that they could be punished than to be punished like Jesus had just been. And I know, even though the text doesn't say, I'm sure Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus' actions had to affect others. How many other people were secret believers of Jesus, just like these guys were? And when they step out to do something, I'm sure others started out to do the same. We could call this the first church split of the New Testament. Two members of the Sanhedrin go off. Now, the church doesn't start till Acts 1, but we can still call it the first church split. But what's important is these guys act on their faith, and it leads others to possibly believe too. And we see this occur with companies even in America, companies like Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A that are closed one day a week because they were started by Christian men and women that want to be part of a church service on a Sunday and they want their church, their employees to be able to worship God on Sundays like they do. For three years I worked at a book, Christian bookstore before moving here, and we were always closed on Sundays. Every single day, we made $1,000 a day, this tiny little bookstore. So we gave up $4,000 a month simply because we were closed on Sundays. That's a big sacrifice for a little family-owned store. In November and December, we made $5,000 a day. <laughs> that was twenty grand a month we were giving up in those two months just because the owners wanted it important for them and their employees to be able to go to church. My, my wife and son, I was off at a seminar yesterday, so they went to a, a store in town, and the, the store was closed. 
And I told them that's because it's owned, the family that owns it is Seventh-day Adventist, right? It's a retail store closed on a Saturday, but that's a testimony of their faith that they'll be closed. So these guys, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, we've seen them be believers as well as John. John's just describing it. Joseph and Nicodemus are acting. And they bury Christ, starting in verse 40 through 42. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So they're following the normal Jewish custom. You wash the body, you wrap it in cloths with myrrh and aloes and perfume to preserve it, and you place it in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea probably already owned this tomb if it's readily available. And the Sabbath started at 6 p.m. normally, and Jesus likely died at 3 p.m. So they've got a three-hour window. They've got to do this quickly. And as we see these two men giving a tomb and giving 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, it tells us that as believers in Jesus Christ, our assignment, just like these men, is to give what we have to Christ because Christ gave everything he had. It's a great reminder for us. Christ gave everything he had for us. And the proper response is that we give of what we have to him. Here's a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea giving his tomb. Another powerful man named Nicodemus giving these spices to prepare Jesus' body. It might seem like a lot to them, but in reality it's not a lot, considering the God of the universe sent his son to earth to die a criminal's death on their behalf. And even for us, I know we have a lot going on. We have house payment and electricity payments and car payments and insurance and Netflix and cell phones and internet and groceries and retirement and all these different bills that can kind of just slowly build on us and push us down and we feel like we can never get under them. But sometimes we need gentle reminders. Jesus gave everything for us and it's us that should give something back to him and his church to tithe and give to him regularly. One of the two cartoons I like to read is um, Frank and Ernest, the two older single guys in the newspaper, if you read those cartoons. And then Baby Blues, which is kind of the other side of the world. It's a young family with three little kids, a husband and wife with three little kids. And this one I clipped a few months ago. The husband and wife are in bed, and the alarm goes off, and the husband reaches over to click it. And he says, I don't want to go to work today. The wife rolls over and looks at him and she says, really? Because I'm dying to get up, make breakfast, pack lunches, wrestle three kids in their clothes in the next 30 minutes, drive the carpool, wash six loads of laundry, and he gives up and he says, okay, you win. I wonder sometimes if Jesus feels like that when he tells us in his word that we are supposed to give financially to his church or his ministries 
when we reply, well, I can't afford $50 a week or things like that. I wonder if Jesus feels that way. I gave everything for you. At least you can give a small portion back to the church. Lee Eklov, who was a pastor in the Midwest for decades, says offering envelopes don't just carry checks. They also carry faith and sacrifice for Jesus' sake. And that faith and sacrifice of our financially giving is a model patterned after Jesus' sacrifice for us. But that model of giving and sacrifice is for us that are believers. If you're here and you're not a believer, that's not the expectation for you to give financially or to give your time. That expectation for you is to give your life to Jesus Christ, to place your faith in him. That's the first step. That's the first thing you need to do. A guy named Philip Bliss, he wrote a few hymns before he passed away as a young man. He died in a train accident. But he wrote this hymn before he passed away as we end our time together. It's called Hallelujah, What a Savior. He says, he writes, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then a new this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus, he gave his life for you. And the best response you can give to him is to give your life to him. Let's pray. And then at the end of my prayer, I'll invite the, uh, the guys to come up for uh, communion to pass out the elements. God, thank you for giving us your word that tells us how to live and what to do in certain circumstances. Thank you for models that we get to follow. Guys like John or Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they were not perfect. And God, that helps us connect with them and relate to them because we are not perfect either. I pray for us as a church that you would help us recognize how you, God, work in our lives so that we can keep those stories and testify to you, to others. And I pray for anyone here, maybe they have not made that step to place their faith in you. I pray for your Holy Spirit to work in their hearts and to be with them. And that through your Holy Spirit, you would lead them to place their faith in you for salvation forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.